City of Hope. Well, let me say how much of a joy and delight it is to be with you again to worship Jesus Christ, our King. Um, let me also say how much of a joy and pleasure it is for me to be able to share and preach God's word to you this morning. Um, I know that my family will be grateful that they hear the word this morning instead of just hearing me practice parts of it around the house. So may the Holy Spirit meet us, strengthen our hearts, and through the powerful, life-changing words of Scripture, point us to Jesus Christ. Won't you join me in prayer for that right now? Our Father, the heavens declare your glory and the sky above your handiwork. Your law is perfect. It revives the soul. Your testimony is sure. It makes wise the simple. Your precepts are right. They rejoice the heart. Your commandments are pure. They enlighten the eyes. The fear of you, O Lord, is clean. It endures forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired is your word than gold, even much fine gold. And Lord, your word is sweeter than honey on a honeycomb. God, by your word, your servants and your people are warned. And in keeping your word, there is great reward. Now, Lord, I am unable, even in this moment right now, in all of my sinfulness, my finite mind and my frail heart, to discern all of my errors. And so as I consider and expound upon your word with your people, I ask you, Lord, to guard me from hidden faults. Lord, keep me from presumptuous sins as I seek to humbly and properly handle your sacred word with integrity and don't let any pride or arrogance or haughtiness have dominion over me. Hide me behind the very cross of Christ that I endeavor to speak about today that your church may see the risen Lord and his glory alone. And now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You are my rock and my redeemer. It is in the invincible name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles or your copy of God's Word in another form, please turn with me to two passages of Scripture. Uh, they are 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. We'll be reading the Colossians passage first. And we're reading from two, two passages of Scripture because uh, both these passages of Scripture is where the, the text of the sermon is drawn from. Uh, however, we will primarily be examining 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So please give attention to the reading of God's word. Colossians 1, 24 to 29 says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then our main scriptural passage coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, 
The word of the Lord reads like this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are currently, as many of you know, vastly approaching a political event that is commonly referred to as the general election in the United States of America. Typically, every four years, the election is held, and the opposing party of whomever the sitting president is puts forth a candidate to run for the office of president in the United States. Now, family, you need not to worry. I am, I am not here, and it's not my intent this morning to talk about politics in any way, shape, or fashion. Um, Neither am I intending to campaign for any individual who happens to be making their bid for the highest office in the land. So you can rest easy. I do, however, note this upcoming event because I find one aspect of it to be rather interesting, to say the least. Now, it's quite understandable and reasonable for it to be newsworthy when the challenger for the opposing party or some other party is actually voted to be the party's representative in the general election. I can understand that. It makes even more sense to publicly report when the results of the general election will reveal who will hold that office for the next four years. But it seems that we've come, family, to a time in history where in this generation's 24-hour news cycle, it's somehow newsworthy or reportable information when someone is simply announcing that they're going to run for the office. What makes this more astounding is that the majority of the time the announcement is already known and expected. Family, it would seem that the whole point of the quote-unquote news is to report something that actually is, in fact, real news. It's worth considering that one of the reasons why there is such great interest in politicians who simply announce candidacy is because we live in an age where people are always looking for answers or the next best life thing. We, we want strategies. Uh, Mr. or Mrs. Politician, uh, how are you going to change things for what we consider the better? And you know as well as I do, family, that politicians traffic in words and slogans. And so we want to know what kind of rallying cry do you have? What, what kind of winning phrase do you have? What type of catchy colloquialism are we going to be able to take home with us and hype us up this time? What is going to give us the warm and fuzzy from a slogan or a chant that you give us? In short, what is your wisdom? What is your good news? What's your gospel? Family, I want to speak to you today from this subject, Him We Proclaim, Christ Crucified. It's my intent this morning to humbly submit to you a recurring theme as we open up the treasures of God's Word together, and that theme is simply this. The preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ displays the greatest wisdom in the history of the world and equips us with everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. The preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ displays the greatest wisdom in the history of the world and equips us with everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. It's my endeavor to lay open three points to you today, beloved, if the Lord wills, and those three points are these. A decided proclamation 
a demonstration of power and a declaration for faith. A decided proclamation. A demonstration of power and a declaration for faith. First, a decided proclamation. Let's take a few moments to look at the historical context and background to which Paul is writing this first letter to the church at Corinth. Now, this is not an exhaustive historical overview by any means, but as we consider the world of Corinth in the era of Paul, one cannot help but to observe how strikingly similar certain aspects of that cultural era resemble those of our own day. A cursory look at this particular period would suggest that there were a few tendencies that were present in this cultural environment. First, there was the issue of obsessive concern about reputation and status in the eyes of others. There was also the emergence of self-promotion to win applause and gain influence. There was an ambition to succeed by manipulating those same networks of influence. And there was rhetoric that was more concerned with audience approval ratings than with truth. Family, there was also an environment where people placed an excessive value on autonomy and personal rights. Now you have to understand that these ideas were not simply held by citizens in the privacy of their own homes and kept undercover, no. See, these thought patterns were further spread and publicized through the medium of both philosophy and rhetoric in Greco-Roman culture. This area of Athens, this Greek and consequently Roman culture with which was refounded and resettled by Julius Caesar around 44 BC, see, they cherished rhetoric or oratory, which was what shaped the speeches in public assemblies. Uh, this sort of methodology was also a catalyst for oratorical competitions and public speakers in the marketplace. There would be rhetor rhetoricians, if you will, or speech makers who would express their ideas in the open and around the common people freely and without reservation. Just imagine if you were at Walmart or Target or if you're Pastor Brian Whole Foods. Someone gets up on the table in the freezer, produce section, and begins to make a speech. That might seem quite odd to some of you, but that's how it was in this time. It was extremely popular to state your ideas about whatever it was you believed in the public market, marketplace or in the public square. Does, does this sound familiar? As long as you were a riveting or convincing or persuasive or enthusiastic public speaker or orator, there was a great opportunity to gain a hearing among the people and of course eventually win popularity, prestige, praise, and privilege. Now enter into this context and backdrop the Apostle Paul. Scholars widely believe that Paul's rhetorical skills fell quite short of those of his colleagues in ministry, Apollos. To add to that, there was also this issue of expectation from the Corinthian believers. You see, since they were being influenced by the surrounding environment of sweet-sounding words, they had built up an appetite for and been educated in the fields of rhetoric, oratorical skills, and philosophical musings of the day. And so in light of this backdrop, family, beloved, I want you to look and note the contrast here. Note how this rugged, raw, tattered, unpopular Apostle Paul who not only had endured suffering and hardship that very few had experienced for the sake of the message that he preached, but in the second letter to this same church at Corinth had to prove the very authenticity of his apostleship and ministry. This Paul, who before he was converted to Christianity was wreaking havoc against the Lord's people and committing himself to jailing and persecuting Christians before his conversion on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. This Paul who after that miraculous conversion on the, one of his earlier missionary journeys, he actually started this church in Corinth. 
And he now had the pastoral care and concern to address its decline and its dangerous flirtation with the false gods and contemporary culture of its day. This Paul says to this applause-seeking, self-absorbed, self-promoting, rhetoric-loving, pleasure-seeking, idol-worshiping church that he had determined to know nothing among them, not one ounce or shred of manly wisdom, but only Jesus Christ and him crucified. Take a closer look at our text this morning. It's going to make it clear that the Apostle Paul is emphatic with the church at Corinth about what he did not come to do. Paul in this text is making a sharp contrast and division and distinguishment between what the church at Corinth might have been participating in the culture and the marketplace around them and what he was conveying to them. Paul says, no, I don't want you to get it twisted. I don't know what you're hearing about me in these Athens streets, but don't get the wrong impression or idea about what my agenda is. Notice here how he presents his writing in the contrary fashion first, and then he expresses it positively. Paul uses a series of emphatic knots and nothings to get his point across. Verse 1, he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man. Paul says, I'm not interested in coming to you with lofty speech or wisdom, but I am coming to you with a, a plain testimony of Christ and revealing the hidden mystery. I'm, I'm not expressing to you any outside knowledge, but I do offer the knowledge of Christ and him crucified. I'm not encouraging you to rest your faith in man's wisdom, but I am pointing you to a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I'm not referring to the wisdom of this age, but I am referring to a higher wisdom decreed by God before the foundation of the world. I'm not trying to show you what the eyes can see, what the ears can hear, what the imagination of the heart can perceive, but I am excited and eager to whet your appetite for the prepared treasures from God that you couldn't think up if you tried. I'm not assuming you can ever fully really know the mind of God this side of heaven, but I do want to tell you about the free and flowing teaching of God's wisdom that is available to those who have the spirit. I understand that spiritual things cannot be accepted by natural men and women, but since you have received Christ, Oh, let me testify of the godly judgment, wisdom, discernment, and understanding for the spiritual person. And as ministers of the word and as believers in Christ, we should take this cue from Paul and recognize that the only way that this door opens for people to walk in, the only way for the light to come on in the heart and the mind is if we determine not to know the latest news, not to know the latest philosophical ideas, not the recent scores from the playoffs, not the craziest political landscape, not the gossip down the street, not the talk of the town, not the who's who in celebrity culture, but only Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love how the conjunction here denotes that not only did Paul intend for the wisdom of the crucifixion to be known by the church at Corinth, but he also wanted everything else about Jesus Christ and his life and birth and death to be known as well. Everything about the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session which is the seating of Christ at the right hand of God, was there to put on display in Paul's preaching ministry about Jesus. Beloved, there are so many glorious attributes about the person and work of Christ that have been accomplished for us that it's completely inexhaustible to get to the bottom of. You see, the repertoire that the apostle or any other faithful minister of the word of God has at his disposal is limitless. We can lift up how Christ Jesus is both the lion and the lamb and showing his kingly reign and his perfect humanity. We can talk about how Jesus Christ is the light in the midst of a world of darkness. 
We can highlight the fact that Christ is the creator of all things and how he framed and shaped the worlds by the word of his power. The preacher can open up the treasure about how Christ is the only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father in John 1.14. Proclaim how the throne of Christ is forever and ever in Hebrews 1 and 8. Proclaim how in Isaiah 9, he's the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Proclaim how Jesus Christ is the true God in 1 John 5 and 20. Proclaim how he's the blessed God forever in Romans 9.5. We should proclaim with the preacher how Jesus is the God over the whole earth in Isaiah 54, 5. Proclaim how his name is called Emmanuel, God with us in Matthew 1, 23. Proclaim how he's the Lord of hosts in Hosea 12 and Genesis 32. Proclaim how he's the Lord of glory right here in 1 Corinthians 2, 8. Proclaim how he's the great I am in John and then go on to proclaim his character in that book when he says, I'm the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, the life, and the vine. We can proclaim how Jesus is the creator of all things the upholder of all things, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, Alpha and Omega. Proclaim how Jesus is the word of life in John 1 and 1. Proclaim how Jesus is the righteous servant and the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief in Isaiah 53. Magnify, worship, and extol the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the anointed one in Psalm 2, the Messiah in John 4, the lamb that was slain and then had the nerve and the audacity and the right to be the same lamb who sat on the throne in Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation 7. Proclaim him as the bridegroom, the overcomer, and the tree of life for all eternity. But if you don't want to proclaim him like that, maybe you want to proclaim him like my grandmother Honey used to proclaim him. She used to say, he's the lily of the valley. He's the bright morning star. He's the rose of Sharon. He's bread when I get hungry, water when I'm thirsty, food on my table, clothes on my back, shoes on my feet. He's my company keeper. He's the bridge over toward the, to, troubled water, doctor in a sick room, lawyer in a courtroom, friend when I'm friendless. He's a battle axe in the time of a battle. He's my leaning post. He's the ship of Zion. He's a way maker. He's joy and sorrow, hope for tomorrow. He's shelter in the time of a storm. He's the captain of my soul and he's everything that I need. And when my grandmother just simply wanted to say the gospel in one sentence, she would just simply say, living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified. Freed me forever. And one day he's coming back, church. Glorious day. Now listen, there's more ways to proclaim Jesus Christ. More ways to proclaim him. Because if you would have happened to be at our Monday night Laurel Small Group, just in case you would have happened to stop by, you would have learned that we proclaim that God is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Aaron, greater than Abraham, greater than the prophets, greater than the kings. He is the veil that was torn in two. He's the altar, the offerer, the sacrifice, the tabernacle, the temple, the forerunner, the mercy seat, the priest, and the high priest, and the mediator of a new covenant, and the glory of God that came down to meet the children of Israel. He's the author, the finisher of our faith, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This is who we proclaim. Jesus Christ. And family, we get to this a bit later. But after professing and proclaiming that Jesus is all of that, what makes you think he's bothered by your problem? What, 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 what is your circumstance to him? What sin has you so entangled that Christ cannot free you from it? Oh, the depth and the wisdom, the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. But not only family does the text offer us a decided proclamation, it also offers us a demonstration of power. Look back at what Paul writes to them in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 1. He says that they weren't lacking in any gift because the enrichment in all speech and knowledge 
found through the testimony of Jesus Christ. The church of Corinth received this by grace. After Paul gives them a commendation and assurance that the grace of Christ is working in them, he then pivots to this idea and theme of the cross and its power. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He continues with this idea of power in the very next verse where he says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. People of God, this reminds us that the continual Christ-centered cross-preaching is vital not only for initial salvation, but for the keeping and perseverance of the believer throughout their Christian walk. In other words, the powerful demonstration of the Spirit in the, fool- in the foolishness of, pre- of the preaching is in the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. You might ask, what is this demonstration of power that the writer keeps talking about? What, what is the point of Paul consistently pointing to the preaching and unfolding of the truth of Scripture and embracing of power for, for the Christian by Christ on the cross? I remember growing up in a Pentecostal church, and we had something called uh, Terry service. Now, Terry service was interpreted by the, the folks I grew up in as a time where you set aside, normally for several hours, I might add, <laughs> to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come. We met every Tuesday night and we took literally the command of Jesus found in Acts chapter one, verse four, that says he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I remember sitting in Terry service family as a young boy and when we would sing power, power, Lord, power, power, Lord, Lord, send your power, power, Lord, Lord, send your power, power, Lord. I remember praying quietly because we just sing that for hours. <laughs> I remember praying quietly to myself as a child. I said, Lord, please send this power that they're talking about so that I can go home, get some rest and go to school tomorrow. <laughs> Now, I'll admit that the methodology that was used by those believers might have been a little strange or overboard at times. But, beloved, if you kept listening to those old prayer warriors and those old saints keep singing that song, they'd begin to say, power to walk right. Power, Lord. Power to talk right. Power, Lord. Power to live right. Power, Lord. Power to give right. Power, Lord. Power to pray right. Power, Lord. Power to love right. Power, Lord. Power on the job, power, Lord, power in the home, power, Lord, and on and on and on. And now living on this side of my faith journey, I know that they were not just just asking for some sort of hocus pocus or off the wall miracle, but that they needed the power of the Holy Spirit for holiness, righteousness, purity, sanctification, and joy in their walk with the Lord. See, one of the reasons that there was a necessity for the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth is because as we spoke about earlier, they had allowed themselves to be caught up and whisked away by the strange teachings and idol worship of their day through the smooth sounding speeches and polished presentations that were so often given to them. And for that reason, Paul often had to point them back to where the power for their lives came from, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Paul's letter to this church at, at Corinth reminded them of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his powerful crucifixion would sustain them to the end and present them to be guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul heard that they were seeking to form cliques and group themselves by the names of recognized apostles and fellow workers. Does that sound familiar? And he sought to nip that in the bud by saying that none of these men, including himself, was crucified for them. He appeals to the cross of Christ to bring them back to the reality of their service 
to the Lord. He assures them that the, because Christ, the true lamb, had been sacrificed on the cross, that they were free to celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What a glorious liberty for this church to know that because of the cross of Christ, power was given to them. And they didn't have to have the divisions among them in the church. They, they could have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to live in suspicion and distrust of the ministries of the elders around them because Christ had called them to suffering and service. They didn't have to participate in sexual immorality, but they could walk in purity and love. They didn't have to take each other to court and sue each other, but they could be defrauded and settle their differences in light of the cross of Christ and what he had done for them. They didn't have to dishonor the Lord in their marriage covenants, but they could walk in companionship and wholeness with their husband and wives because Christ's body was broken for them so that they might be healed. They didn't have to be a stumbling block for their brothers and sisters with regard to food offered to idols, but they could serve them as ones who were strong in the faith. They didn't have to live their lives in fear of not living up to a human or worldly standard or manufacturing some kind of false pseudo of fake love for the purpose of pleasing men, but that they could do all things to the glory of God for the sake of Jesus Christ's death and walk in the newness of life because of the power of his resurrection. It's worth pausing and asking here. Is there a demonstration of the power of cross working in your life? Are you pursuing the flavor and weight and the substance of that passage in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, which says that he is able to do far more abundantly and above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in you? Family, that's definitely something worth pondering on, meditating on, and considering as we think about the cross of Christ and the demonstration of power. Finally, the proclamation of the cross of Christ is a declaration for faith. And dear brothers and sisters, let me lovingly suggest to you that sometimes we miss it, but the wisdom of this text speaks quite poignantly to the ways in which we are to engage those around us. Not just speaking about evangelism, but I'm also speaking about our interaction with the family of God, with one another. When we think about our call to share the gospel, whether that be encouraging one another in the household of faith or making disciples among the nations, we need not think that lofty speech or, or lofty wisdom in any way helps the testimony of God. It doesn't help the testimony of God. In fact, let me parenthetically sidestep the Church of Corinth for a moment and come down our street. When we consider the declaration of faith that we proclaim, does it contain only pointing folks to Jesus Christ and him crucified? Or is it mixed with something else that we feel works? Is it mixed with something else that we might have faith in? other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Were we to examine and look carefully at our hearts this morning, what would it reveal about the declaration of our faith? In no way am I suggesting that practical conversation and practical wisdom is not necessary. But in our interactions, do we regularly engage in proclaiming God's word and the message of the cross in a way that edifies, builds, uplifts, and encourages and points one another, one another to the grace of Christ and to eternal life? What would it look like for there to be a cross-shaped focus in our interactions with one another? Our homes, our places of work, places of recreation, and every other facet of our lives. The wisdom of the cross of Christ is a declaration for your faith. Don't forget what Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me encourage you this morning, continue in the gospel. Tighten your grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you need encouragement in your faith or if you need assurance of the power that works within you, just flip a few chapters over to Romans 8 and skip down to the list with the apostle where he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long as we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Declare your faith and put whatever you want to put on that list. Who shall separate us? I got to ask, if, if, if Jesus Christ's power is displayed on the cross and is now working in our lives, who shall separate you? What shall separate you? Satan and all of his powers? Anxiety? Depression? A failed marriage, a wayward child, a contentious supervisor? Sickness, pain, fear? All of these things are valid obstacles. These trials are real. But so is the cross of Christ. And he is able to do above abundantly all that you ask or think by the power that works in you, the power that he made available at the cross. Walk in that power. Bask in that wisdom and let your faith rest in Jesus' perfect wisdom and love. It's been written of Martin Luther that Satan, either in reality or in a dream, appeared in the death of night and addressed him in the following terms. Luther, how dare you pretend to be a reformer of the church? Luther, let your memory do its duty. Let your conscience do its duty. You have committed this sin. You've been guilty of that sin. You have omitted this duty. You've neglected that duty. Let your reform begin in your own bosom. How dare you attempt to be a reformer of the church? Luther was said to have responded to the accuser, take up the slate that lies on the table and write down all the sins which you have now charged me. If there be any additional, add those sins as well. The enemy of Luther's conscience, the evil one, rejoiced to have the opportunity of accusing. And he took up a pencil. And he wrote a long and painful roll of the real or imputed sins of Luther. Luther said to have responded, have you written all of it? In other words, did you get it? The accuser responded, yes, I did. And this dark catalog of transgressions should be sufficient to deter you from making any attempt to reform others till you have first purified and reformed yourself. Luther said, get some more paper. Get another pen. Let me dictate to you some more sins because my sins are many. My transgressions in the sight of an infinitely holy God are countless as the hairs of my head. In, in me, in their me, dwelleth no good thing. He said, let me tell you something, Satan. After the last thing you have recorded, I want you to do something. Write this announcement on top of the list. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. I'm going to say that one more time. Let it sink in. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Luther's response reminds me of that third stanza we sang this morning. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Church, the result of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross opens the path for us to live fully in the glory of his resurrection. In turn, suffering and bearing the cross that we are commanded to carry, which is really an easy load, it changes our perspective on life and causes us to live lives that are a sweet-smelling savor to the Father. Living sacrificially in this way transforms us and makes us more like Jesus. On our faith journey, we should be encouraged to find grace, hope, endurance, love, and joy in the cross of Christ. You remember that movie, The Passion of Christ? It was a movie that was supposed to depict the suffering of Christ on the cross and the agony he endured during the last days of his life. The movie was indeed graphic visually, and it certainly did make its best attempt to recreate and reenact the scene from Christ's crucifixion. But it's interesting to note a few reactions from this movie by unbelievers who went to see it. Quote, I'm still a bit numb. I could not even muster a smile or a nod when passing people like I normally do while leaving the theater. I just sat in the cold in my car for a bit before I could drive home. Despite all of this, I will go and see the movie again after reading a bit and see if I can clear up the bits and pieces of what I was not sure about. Second quote, I am a pagan. There was a part of me that was afraid of this movie, afraid that it would break me, that my faith would waver, that the old familiar doubt would creep back into my life. I went away and opened myself to the experience as much as I consciously could. I came out on the other side feeling my faith in my mother, Mother God, much stronger than it, it was going in. She may be a warrior, but she could find no honor in the idea of this kind of death, nor in the thought that this was in some way atoning. Third quote, I am not a Christian. I mention that only in so much as it may speak to my, any intrinsic expectation that I may have had. I was stunned. I've been asked, did you enjoy the film? film? And I'm not certain how to answer that question. I was moved and I, I'm, I'm glad I saw it. However, obviously it wasn't, isn't a feel good movie. So I wouldn't say I enjoyed it per se, but I was deeply, deeply moved. I felt the theater, in, I, I left the theater in a stunned silence and drove home in a stupor. One personal measure I use of the quality of art is how moving it is. In this regard, I've never been more moved by a piece of art. A piece of art. Let me say something to you. It's never enough that we simply see the crucifixion of Christ and say, oh, what a sad thing that happened to this man. Oh, I'm so deeply moved by the heinous act of crucifixion, and I hope it never regains traction in, in, our, our, um, uh, in, in our tolerant age. Or, wow, it's amazing how art can be so vivid and depict such graphic things or imagery. Or we shouldn't say, boy, I got to go back to see the movie again so I can be drawn to what the message might be. But the true mark of faith is when we fall on our knees before a holy and righteous and just and sovereign and all-powerful king and say, I will turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and belief, and I will no longer place my faith in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God through the cross of, of Jesus Christ. I often tell people that I have the utmost respect and regard for people who come and pick up the trash. Yeah, I know that we don't even think about it. It's, it's, it's just our trash. We just, we put it on the curb. About once a week, somebody comes, picks it up. But they take our trash from our homes and our places of abode for obvious reasons so that we don't have to deal with it, smell it, handle it, or live with it. Beloved, our trash is taken, hear me, sometimes outside of the city dumping grounds and cesspools so that it is away from us, so that we don't have to deal with it. How much more on a superlative level should we realize that Jesus Christ went to Calvary outside the camp and was slain and crucified for our sins? And he doesn't just send it for recycling. 
He cast them far away as the east is from the west so that now we don't have to live with, deal with, smell the stench of shame, guilt, embarrassment, transgressions, and unworthiness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me close with this. Those of you who know me well or are part of the small group um, or if you spent any great deal of time with me, you know how highly I speak of my grandmother, Honey, who went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, how much of an impact that she's had on my life. As you can see, she came up early in the sermon as well. Well, our, our family, when I was growing up, we moved around quite often, and we would routinely wind up back at my grandmother's house in between our, our state places of residence. My grandmother did most everything she did, um, all of her outside activities, she did it on the porch, whether that was sewing, knitting, reading, or rocking in her chair. And I, and she did on the porch uh, of the house, which was on the corner. And, and unfortunately, because her house was on the corner, uh, there was always sort of, well, um, some nefarious activity that young folks would partake in on that corner. And I remember um, one, one time sitting on the, the steps of the porch, and my grandmother was behind me. Um, and, and there was a young man who walked to our corner and was engaging in that sort of activity. I noticed him, but because it was a common thing in my neighborhood, I really didn't pay much attention to him. Suddenly, I heard my grandmother begin to sing, hum and sing in the background. To the utmost, Jesus saves. To the utmost, Jesus saves. He will pick you up and turn you around. Hallelujah, Jesus saves. The young man looked up, and he was a bit startled at first, but my, my grandmother didn't break a stride. She just kept singing, to the utmost. Jesus saves to the utmost. Jesus saves, he will pick you up and turn you around. Hallelujah, Jesus saves. Finally, the young man, annoyed, just walked away, because how do you sell drugs after something like that? <laughs> you see, you don't have to be a preacher or an evangelist or a minister or a prophet to know that within the power of cross is your ability to proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. And although people will rail against it and fight it vigorously, they know internally that it is the only hope for them. And that in God's time, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Trinity knows it. Paul knew it. My grandmother knew it. Do you know it? Jesus' suffering sacrifice to pay for our sins gives us an eternal home and glory with him through the gospel. If you're here today and, and you don't know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection, let me encourage you, run to him now. And when you do, you will have a real, active, life-transforming faith that won't rest in the wisdom of men, but in the foolishness of the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ and his power through the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness, mercy, and kindness to us. We praise you that you have set your scriptures before us. We pray, O oh God, that you would open our eyes, that beyond today we might continually behold wondrous things out of your word. Open our hearts that we might fully know what has been done and accomplished for us. Cause us to behold your son, Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, Help us to proclaim the cross of Christ every day of our lives and strengthen us by the wisdom it gives. 
We pray all of this in the holy, matchless, marvelous name of Jesus Christ. Amen.